Amen. Now, Zechariah 9.9, if you take a peek for a second, is within this section that I'm going to show you, and we're going to go up through verse 12 as we break down the verses, but a familiar verse to you in Zechariah 9.9, it's quoted by John in John 12 and Matthew in Matthew 21, and it reads this way, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, another name for Jerusalem, Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and there's our title. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If you have little uh, scripture notes in your margins, you'll note that Matthew 21.5 and John 12.15 in the New Testament, directly quote this verse. So there's no doubt that uh, Jesus is fulfilling this on what's called the triumphal entry, or we would call it Palm Sunday, and that's the day that we've landed on our calendar today. Now, the temptation for most of us as preachers, and I've been doing this quite a long time, and you know we've come to many Easter's and uh, many uh, Passover weeks and stuff, is to not deal with the setting of this verse, because the setting of this verse is not easy to deal with. And you're going to see why as we read these verses together. Let's see what leads up to this. The burden of the word of the Lord, this is Zechariah 9.1, is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place for the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. We're setting some context now. Zechariah 9.2. And Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a fortress, piled up silver like dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race, verse 6, will dwell in Ashdod and will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. And all God's people said, gross. <laughs> then, they also will be, then they also will be a remnant of our God, and be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them, for now I have seen with my eyes. And then the prophecy, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And I'm sure that most of you reading these verses are like, say what? <laughs> what are these lands, and what is this prophecy, and how was it fulfilled, and what's really going on here. Let me just pause to give you a little background. Zechariah is a prophet, and uh, he's one of the post-exilic prophets, that is, the post-Babylonian captivity. And he was writing at a time when Israel was battling to rebuild their temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., so there's a lot of history that's going on, going on with the Jewish people way before, obviously, the time of Jesus Christ. And so Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. He remembers his promises and his covenant. He was, he was a member of the tribe of Levi and probably served as a, both a prophet and a priest. Zechariah lived and prophesied during the period following the Babylonian captivity from 597 to 538 B.C. That was the captivity his book was completed between 500 and 470 B.C., so before Christ. He began his prophetic ministry in the second year of the Persian king Darius, who reigned from 522 to 486 B.C. Zechariah's last dated prophecy was delivered two years later in 518 B.C. He's a prophet that we would say major themes are encouragement and hope in his book, and he ministered at a time along with the prophets Haggai and Malachi, who ministered to the exiles in returning to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. There was only a small group that returned. 
They had a lot of opposition. It was a very difficult time. They came back to a land that was basically leveled. It was rubble, and they had to rebuild. And so they got discouraged, and they had enemies that were really opposing them, and it was tough. And there were threats, and there was uh, really a pause in the work for quite a long time because of the enemies that were raising up against them. And so it was men like Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi that encouraged them to continue. And what we need in our day is prophetic voices. And I'm talking about those who will preach the word of God faithfully to the remnant of our day because we're facing a lot of difficult challenges. Amen? It's becoming so weird and bizarre out there what people are caught up with and what they're concerned about. And it's such a time of pe- people really being consumed with self and calling evil good and good evil. It's a crazy time. But it's not really unprecedented. There's been many seasons for the people of God to face stuff like this. And there's always been an encouraging word. That's why we need the word of God. And we need it preached to us faithfully. And so a prediction is going to come down from Zechariah in leading up to the time of Jesus. What I will say to you comes through the corridor of time, and it has to do with these people groups and lands that you just uh, read with me. And they're largely fulfilled in something that's called the intertestamental period. Let me explain. There's a 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew where there was really no prophetic voice in Israel. And so that time is largely, I think we're okay. It's okay. I think we're okay. That time is largely, what happened during that time may be largely known, unknown to a lot of uh, individuals. Is my microphone bugging you guys or is it okay? Is it clear? All right. It was bugging me a couple minutes ago, but uh, I, I just tried to pray in the spirit and get over it. So anyway, that intertestamental period, there were some interesting things that happened there. And one of the large players in world history is, an, is a man named Alexander the Great. And if you guys can, in the back, throw up the map for a second, I want to show you that the fulfillment of the first uh, really eight verses of Zechariah 9 happen in the conquest of Alexander the Great. And they happen in the order that the Bible gives them. And they move from a north to south order. So he took Damascus. He moved along the coast to uh, Sidon and Tyre. This is on the eastern Mediterranean coast. And uh, he took those lands. Tyre was the more difficult one to conquer. If you move from north to south down with me, he then dealt with the areas, the five Philistine cities. The one that's not listed there is Gath. But these were the principal cities of the Philistines. Also on that coast, you can see their uh, relation to Jerusalem. And so he took Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, and Gaza, or Gaza. And you guys might remember if uh, you've done a little historical study and looked at how Jerusalem was affected in world wars, or I I should say uh, territorial wars, they were located between Syria to the north on the map and Egypt is to the south. And so often Jerusalem and uh, that area became the punching bag for world leaders or generals. Because they would fight a battle in Egypt or they would fight a battle in Syria and sometimes they would win and sometimes they would lose and they would often allow or they would often take out their aggression on Jerusalem as well. And if you ever get a chance to go to Israel and you hear a guide tell you about just the history of this land, it was pummeled time and time again. It didn't really know who to give its allegiance to. Should I give my allegiance to Egypt or Assyria or uh, Syria to the north? Because there, there was just all kinds of war and bloodshed that happened during this time. And one of the world uh, generals that you can track through secular history, Alexander the Great, came on this conquest. And this was around 332, 331 B.C., and he devastated these lands. He, he was on this uh, uh, quest to conquer. That's what he did. There's a lot we could say about him, but 
We'll move through the verses just so you can get in a, a flavor for them as we move up to verse 9. The Word of God opens in 9.1 of Zechariah with the burden of the Word of the Lord. That's a pretty unique uh, phrase. Turn over to Zechariah 12 for a second. Let me show you a couple other places where it's used. The burden of the word of the Lord, Zechariah 12.1, concerns Israel in 12.1. It's Hadrach in 9.1. And notice that when it talks about the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, it says these words, Thus declare, declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all peoples around. And when, and when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will be also against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And all who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now, Zechariah has prophecy that uh, relates to Israel, Jerusalem specifically, even in the last days. We won't go there for right now, but keep going to your right and move on to Malachi for a second, and you'll see a similar phrase where it says, the oracle, this is Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord. That word oracle is really a synonym for the idea of a burden or a heavy message the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And then he goes on to say, I have loved you, says the Lord, and uh, so forth. A verse, a verse that's actually quoted in Romans chapter nine. Don't have time to go there this morning. Turn back to Zechariah nine. Let me tell you about the burden of the word of the Lord. So when prophets received an oracle from God, the idea of the Hebrew word is that it was a heavy message there are oracles, uh, some 10 oracles that are recorded between Isaiah's, Isaiah chapters 13 to, through 23, and they deal with individual nations that affected in some way Israel. It starts out in Isaiah 13, 1, if you want to cross-reference, with an oracle against Babylon. And Bible history is, uh, is say, Israeli-centric. So that the Bible's focus is Israel, especially in the Old Testament, and then kind of radiates out with nations that interact with God's people, namely the people of Israel. And so that's kind of how you have to read your Bible when you're looking at Old Testament stuff, is as if Israel were the center of the earth, because that's really how God sees it. That's where he wrote his name forever is in Jerusalem. And when prophets received oracles or burdens, it was literally that. It was a weighty message. It was a burden often to the prophet. Jeremiah, for example, was told never to marry because he had such a heavy message to deliver to the people and judgment was coming and so he didn't have a wife or kids because of the impending doom. Isaiah uh, was given a very heavy message. And Isaiah had to walk around naked for three years to act out his message. Hosea, and that was that the people would be carried away in captivity and they would be shamed by their captors. Hosea was told to marry a woman, an adulteress, uh, even a prostitute, a woman that would be unfaithful to him. And the prophet entered into the burden of God. In some ways, some of the prophets got to experience what God felt when his people were either faithful or unfaithful to him. And I'm sure you've noticed, uh, the more you walk with the Lord, the more he gives you his heart and his eyes for the world and for people. And as he does that, there's a certain beauty to it, but there's a certain burden to it, amen? Amen. Because you begin to now look at the world and measure it through God's eyes. You want people to know the Lord. You want people to come out from under the burden of their sin. You see how lost and how confused we can be as a people. But we've been there too. We were once blind to these things. So we have to also show patience and compassion and pray for our enemies. And the prophets, the Greek word is masa here, carried that burden. 
And they had to give some difficult messages. And I'll, I'll tell you, maybe the parallel for us is when we have to say something difficult that the Bible says to a friend or maybe from a pulpit like this. There's times when what I, I know what I'm going to say is not necessarily going to be popular. It's not going to win me a popularity contest all the time to say what the Bible says. But nonetheless, my job is to be faithful to what God has said. And so the prophet had to carry that burden and enter into God's world, if you will, and get to feel what he felt, at least in some respect. I'll give you one example. Hosea 11.8, the prophet speaking on behalf of God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? God is speaking through the prophet. How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me all my compassions are kindled, Hosea 11.8. That's just one example of how God allowed a prophet to enter into the burden of the world that is lost and often rejects him. And when you begin to get a little taste of that as the people of God, you're entering in a little bit to God's world as much as we can as humans. And you're seeing what he sees. And I want to ask you a question. This is an application question. How much of your time do you try to get out from under the normal flesh stuff? It's all about you, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, and direct your concerns towards the kingdom of God and how God sees the world. Do you know that that's one of the things that God's trying to do in our lives is try to get the, the fleshly stuff out of us and help us to see things for the glory of his kingdom. And I would ask you, how are you doing with that? That's why it's such a battle to get to your Bible all the time and to pray and to prioritize the things of the kingdom because everything is an onslaught coming at you, right? The world, the flesh, the devil, all. You, you gotta battle this stuff and it's not easy, but we're all in the same battle. And I would say this too, I wrote this in my notes, God's word can be a burden or a blessing depending on how one is positioned to receive it. <laughs> in, in the same room, God's word can be thrilling to one person and a bummer to another person. And do you know why? It's all about your posture. It's all about what your priorities are. It's all about ultimately what you're living for. It really comes down to these major things. And so in verse 1 of Zechariah 9, the burden of the word of the Lord comes against, so that we know it's judgment language, and all these lands are destined for judgment in this prophecy, against the land of Hadrach. Now we know that that's with Damascus, so that's the area of Syria, back in Zechariah 9.1, as its resting place for the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. And I think the simplest interpretation, even though there's a variant reading, if you have an ESV, it says, for the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. And then the NIV says, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, which is correct. I, I think here, as the NAS has it, it's the eyes of men looking to the Lord for hope. You'll notice at, at the end of the section you move down to verse uh, eight. It's now got, for now I have seen with my eyes. So it's kind of bookended with God's eyes seeing at the end of verse eight and man's eyes looking toward the Lord in verse one. Now in this last year, you guys may remember, I'm sure you do, that we didn't do this together last year because we were in the middle of the beginnings of the pandemic and the shutdowns. And for the first time that I can ever remember, and I'm sure it's been true probably for a long, long time, the church largely did not gather on a Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday. It was some of the strangest preaching I've ever done in my entire life, where we had the, a few of our staff members, some tech people, and a camera, and I was trying to figure out how to preach to a camera with nobody in here. Nobody to say the amen or even boo if I made a poor point. <laughs> so strange. But I'll tell you something that happened. The eyes of the people of God moved toward the Lord. Amen? 
and even people who are on the periphery of the kingdom, you know, people maybe have been away from church for a long time or maybe had a friend witness to them, jumping online to hear the word of the Lord, running back to the things of God because many things were stripped away from us. And praise God that we're back together now. Amen? And I pray that that will continue, but I realize at this point in my life that we have no guarantees. I don't know what's going to happen. But the eyes of the people of God looked toward the Lord. You could imagine as Jerusalem ended up being this punching bag and now word came that Alexander the Great was moving from north to south, coming towards what? The Holy Land again. And so with the recent history of Assyrian invasion and Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar destroying the temple, what would you do? <laughs> you have this guy, he, he's bent on conquest. Uh, he's pictured in the book of Daniel as though his feet didn't even hit the ground. He conquered land so quickly. He only lived, Alexander, to 33. He died at 33, probably because he was an alcoholic and he killed himself. But he, he was so, such a masterful general and he was moving on conquest and Jerusalem was shaking in its boots because they thought, here we go again. Here comes another world power to hurt us and hit us. And so the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Lord, you know, like it says, I think in 2 Chronicles 20, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Moving to some of these lands, we have Hamath, also which borders it, that is borders Damascus, and we'll share in its judgment. We have Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. They don't think that they're going to be judged, but they will. For Tyre built herself a fortress, that is, she's well fortified, piled up silver like dust, gold like the mire of the streets. She was very wealthy. Behold, here's the prophecy, the Lord will dispossess her, and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. If you have an ESV, it says, but behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions, strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Now, as I showed you the map, Alexander the Great became the tool in the hand of God. Zechariah's prophecy is about 200 years before Alexander goes on conquest. This is the nature of biblical prophecy. Predictive prophecy is written often hundreds of years in advance of the actual events, even before the people that carry them out are even born. That's the power of prophecy in the Bible. When Zechariah writes chapter 9, and this is why some liberal scholars try to redate these sections because they can't imagine that God can predict these things in this detail in advance. Here's another aspect of this for you to realize is that God often used uh, nations as a tool of his judgment. And when some of us wrestle even with the conquest of Canaan by the Israelites and how they devastated, you know, uh, women and children and people groups, you have to understand that part of what's going on there, even though I know it's hard to understand in stomach sometimes, is that Israel is God's tool of judgment in the land of Canaan. And God waited a long time to judge those people, and they did detestable things. And finally, sorry, Israel became God's tool to judge the land of Canaan, and then they took the land. Everybody with me? They became a tool of God's judgment. Alexander, in the same way, will be a tool in God's hand to judge these nations that have not treated God's people well. Payday does eventually come. And even though people might think, well, you know, God's not doing anything and uh, nothing's going to happen and all these people seem to be getting away with stuff. And even in our world today, if you look at the political world today and you, you think of how many dastardly things are going on behind closed doors and how many deals are made for money and power and you name it and how many ugly things are done for man's pleasure that destroy people and hurt other people and people seem to be getting away with it. They're not getting away with anything. Payday is coming. 
God is the ultimate judge. Now, these areas of Tyre and Sidon were proud, and I want you to hold a place in Zechariah. We're going to do a little bit of unique study today. We're going to move to Ezekiel, okay? You got to go a handful of pages back, and I'll show you a prophecy and show you how this was fulfilled. Now, Ezekiel writes about 70 years before Zechariah. So this is even farther removed in time before the actual events occur. And this is Ezekiel 26. Let's pick it up at verse 2. Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Ezekiel 26.2, Aha! The gateway of the peoples is broken. It has opened to me. I shall be filled now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Tyre. And I will bring up many nations against you. Nebuchadnezzar came against Tyre, so did Alexander the Great. As the sea brings up its waves, you could say wave upon wave came at Tyre. And they will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. And I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. Uh, Keep going. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I've spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become a spoil of the nations. Also, her daughters who are on the mainland will be slain by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, let me explain what's going on here. Tyre had a mainland on the coast that I showed you, the eastern Mediterranean coast, north of Jerusalem, and they had an island. The island of Tyre sat about a half mile to three quarters of a mile. It's still there today, but it has a causeway uh, from the mainland. So it was a little island about a half mile out, okay, from the shore. And what happened throughout history is Tyre, when they got attacked by a foreign invader, if they could not defend the mainland city that was well fortified and it was, they were very wealthy so that they could build walls, they would go out to the island. All the people would go out to the island, which was also well fortified. And because in the ancient world, they didn't have sophisticated navies, what would happen is the people would go out to the island half mile off the coast and they would kind of set up there and they, would, they were able to defend themselves. So, Nebuchadnezzar, so we're talking about now in the 500s BC, came to destroy Tyre. And he leveled a campaign, uh, destroyed the mainland city, and for 13 years he waged warfare against the Tyrenians. But they fled to the island, and he could not completely take them over. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar gave up and left the debris of his destruction, just like he did to Jerusalem, sitting there. It was 200 years later that Alexander the Great came into this region. And let me just show you, um, well, we'll, well, let me tell you the story and then we'll pick up the verses that are really remarkable that talk about this. So 200 years later, here comes Alexander on his campaign. And he also apparently destroyed the mainland city. The Tyrrhenians fled to the island like they had done before. And Alexander was waging warfare for seven months against them, but they had fled to the island and they were kind of on the island going, and Alexander was frustrated and he didn't like to not conquer a given land. He's the guy that I think at the age of 26 or something like that, he wept in bed because there were no more peoples to conquer. (laughs) I want somebody else to beat up. Anyway. So here's what he did. They took the rubble of the destruction from Nebuchadnezzar and what Alexander had done 200 years later, and they began to throw it into the sea. And they took the timbers and the stones and the rocks, and they threw it into the sea, and it hit bottom, and it began to build up some 100 feet wide, and they made what was called a causeway or a walkway. And little by little, they threw the debris, they got it wherever they could, and they built this causeway, and Alexander and his men moved through the causeway and defeated the people of Tyre and destroyed them. Now get this. This is how incredible prophecy is. Look at verse 12 of Ezekiel 26. 
And they will also make a spoil of your riches and prey of your merchandise, break down your walls, destroy your pleasant houses, and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. This is written, what, 300 years at least before it occurred? So I will silence the sound of your songs and the sound of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. That's because they scraped up everything. You will be a place for the spreading of nets. You can see photos, contemporary photos, where fishermen spread their nets on this area. You will be built no more, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Or I, the, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to Tyre. Shall not the coastland shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan, when the slaughter occurs in your midst? Then all the princes of the sea will go down from their thrones, remove their robes, strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be appalled at you. This is amazing that the word of God is fulfilled in such unique detail. Where else in the world would something like this have happened? where something would be destroyed, they would throw the remnants into the sea to build a causeway to defeat an island. And what book in the world could predict it centuries before it happened in minute detail? The word of the living God who writes history in advance because he is eternal and for him everything is now. Everything is before him. Amen? You see, you don't need blind faith to believe the Bible. The word of God is amazing and powerful. Back to Zechariah chapter nine. Now this is one thing that occurred during the corridor or down through the corridor of time that fulfills Zechariah nine, but it goes on. It lists other cities here. Ashkelon 9.5 of Zechariah. We'll see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. These are the principal Philistine cities, as I mentioned, uh, without Gath. And the passage accurately foretells the conquest of the eastern Mediterranean coastlands by Greek armies under the command of Alexander the Great. That's from James Montgomery Boyce. A mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will remove their blood from their mouth. See, here was part of the problem, their detestable, uh, idolatrous practices. Their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God, some will believe, and be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. God was gonna deal with all the gross stuff that they did. And the, in the ancient world, people would have pagan ceremonies that include the ingesting of blood, and I'm talking about drinking blood and thinking that there was power there. And do you know there are modern vampire movements, and I'm not making this up, contemporary vampire movements that drink blood today as part of their ceremonies. And God said don't do that because the life is in the blood. You are not to do those detestable things. But people do it because they think it's either cool, in quotes, or they will give them, them power. And people get into all weird, dark kind of stuff. And God says, no, you don't do that. Now notice, it moves from all these cities I mentioned that Alexander conquered to a reference of God's house in verse eight. It says, I will camp around my house, Zechariah 9, 8, because of an army, that would be no doubt Alexander's army because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. Now, no doubt that as, I, as you guys looked at the map, Jerusalem would have been right in the crosshairs of Alexander the Great. It would have been easy for him just to take the land and destroy it and take the spoil and do whatever he wanted to do. So Alexander, according to World history, you can check this out. I'm actually giving you secular history now. Came toward Jerusalem. And it looked like things were gonna go really bad. And there was a high priest at that time 
So we're talking about 300s BC. His name was Jedua or Jedus. And he began to pray to God. And God gave him a dream. And God basically said, I want you guys to dress in like your celebratory garments, your uh, vestral garments, like you were going to do a feast. And when Alexander comes, I want you to be in your white high priestly garment. This is all in a dream. And by the way, this is verified by the records of the antiquities of the Jews written by Josephus. Josephus records this whole incident. Alexander is coming towards Jerusalem and they open the gates of the city and the high priest comes out in his celebratory garments and they line up and they send out the musicians almost like they did in 2 Chronicles 20 where the worship team would go out to fight the battles of the Lord. And so Alexander had made a request earlier that the Jews support his army and they refused because they had made a commitment to the Persian leader Darius and he took a very dim view of people who didn't uh, do what he said. And so Josephus recounts the story. I'm just going to read a few sections, but listen to this. This is a historian around the time of Jesus. It says, Judas and Judas, or Judua, the high priest, when he heard that, that Alexander was coming, was in agony and under terror as not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians of the Greek troops. Since the king was displeased at his foregoing disobedience, this is some ancient language, but We'll get through it. He therefore ordained that the people should make supplications, pray, and should join with him in offering sacrifice to God, whom he besought to protect that nation and to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. You could imagine an, an army like Alexander the Great's coming towards your land. What would you do? Whereupon God warned him in a dream which came upon him after he had offered sacrifice that he should take courage, adorn the city, open the gates, that the rest should appear in white garments, Josephus being quoted, but the, that he and the priest should meet the king in the habits proper to their order, without the dread of any ill consequences, which the providence of God would prevent. And when Judas uh, understood that Alexander was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and the multitude of the citizens. After literally throwing open the doors of Jerusalem, says one writer, and taking pains to be as friendly and non-threatening as possible, the high priest and a large column of prominent citizens went out to meet the army of Alexander. Alexander's forces were accompanied by his new Samaritan allies, who may have hoped that Alexander would punish the city for its initial recalcitrance. They may have even hoped that they would be allowed to plunder Jerusalem. But Alexander responded in a surprising way. When the inhabitants of Jerusalem encountered him, Alexander seized the high priest dressed in the robes of a high priest and a turban adorned with a gold plate engraved with the Hebrew name of God. He approached by himself and adored that name and first saluted the high priest. In explanation, Alexander the Great said that he had seen the high priest in a dream before embarking on his campaign of conquest. Further in his dream, the high priest had assured Alexander, so he sees this man, the Jewish high priest, and the high priest in the dream assures him that he'll be victorious over the Persians. Alexander is next taken into Jerusalem where he offers a sacrifice to God at the temple according to the high priest's direction. Josephus offers another important but highly controversial detail about Alexander's brief visit to Jerusalem. While in the city, a scroll of the book of Daniel is brought to Alexander the Great. And when the book of Daniel is showed to him, showing a Greek uh, taking over rapidly destroying Persia from Daniel chapter 8, he believes that he is that man. That Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians. He supposed it to be himself. And so he leaves the city alone. He dismisses the multitude for the present and allows them to continue in their practices unabated. God gives Alexander a dream and the high priest of Israel a dream and camps around his house fulfilling Zechariah 9.8 and protects his people from the invader, this brilliant Greek general. And the word of the Lord is fulfilled. I'm telling you, folks, you can't make this stuff up. And it goes right with secular history as it's been recorded. And then, 
as we move down the corridor of time, wonder of wonders, what do we find? A prophecy about Palm Sunday. And you say, why is it here? Why the, is the writer, the prophet Zechariah, inspired to place this right after all those prophecies about Alexander the Great? I'll tell you why, because we're moving down the corridor of time, and what the prophets love to do is even though they write some dark, heavy stuff, they often move towards the Messiah to say there's going to be light, hope is going to come, and here is the prophecy, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. You just got a foretaste of what God is going to do. Yes, he protected you. Yes, he gave dreams. Yes, he stopped Alexander the Great, but this awesome general, nothing like Alexander, is going to come, and you're going to shout and triumph your people in the future, that is, O daughter of Jerusalem, because behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, he's endowed with salvation, he's humble, and he's mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Your king is coming down the corridor of time. The answer will be here. And then when he comes, they'll be under Roman occupation. And they'll be looking for deliverance. But Jesus will come. And he will look over the city that he loves. And he will weep over it because he came to defeat sin and death, not the Romans. And the prophecy is there. 500 years before Jesus said, get me, get me that colt. And some people say, ah, you see, Jesus just set it up. He knew the prophecy from Zechariah. It would be easy to go ahead and pick out a colt and claim you're the Messiah. But how do you get the people on board? How do you get the people to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? How do you get all them to cooperate? And how do you get them to do the palm branches and the whole thing? Look, Jesus, if anything, did not publicly make himself known as the Messiah. A few times in private conversations, he said it. If anything, he wasn't trying to blow the trumpet, but he was fulfilling prophecy because the Messiah had to ride into Jerusalem this way. Everybody with me? There's no way he could have set that whole thing up, even though he knew the prophecy, because the prophecy would be fulfilled. The colt, the beast of burden, would carry the Messiah. The colt was an animal of peace. He didn't come on the war horse like Alexander the Great. He came on the colt, the foal of a donkey, the beast of burden. He came to bring glad tidings. He came to defeat our ultimate enemies. And here it is in our Bibles, 500 years before it occurred, quoted by Matthew in 21.5 and John in chapter 12, saying to us, this scripture today is fulfilled in your hearing in your seeing, in historical records that we have. But it doesn't stop there. I want to take you through verse 12 because these are verses that we might not normally look at. Here's what it says. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. The chariot was a, a, like an ancient tank of war. The horse from Jerusalem, the bow, that's the bow and arrow, of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, continuing to speak of Messiah, and his dominion will be, notice, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, interesting language, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. If you have an ESV, NIV, it says, return to the stronghold, O prisoners of hope. This very day I'm declaring that I will restore double to you. It reminds me of the book of Job when Job gets double restored back to him at the very end of the book. Today I find myself as a prisoner of hope because I've been released from my sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I look back, as I know you do, to a week, this Passover week, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem and presented himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the people began to acclaim him as Messiah. They began to shout in triumph, verse 9. They began to give him acclamation as the king and began, began to quote Psalm 118 and acclaim to him messianic uh, acclamation or titles and the religious leaders said don't do that don't say that don't, don't let the people say that of you and Jesus said if they don't say it 
the rocks are going to cry out, baby. And we're going to have the first rock concert in history. If the people don't acclaim me, because I'm telling you, I made everything, and I'm coming to save my people. And I'm coming endowed with salvation. And you don't have to just believe it because Jesus quoted the verse or said something of the verses or quoted something like this. Look, in Isaiah 61.1, he quotes it in Luke 4 in the synagogue. And he says, look, I've come to set the captives free. I've come to open prison cells. He was speaking of spiritual realities. I want you to take my kingdom and sow the seed of the kingdom so that people will lay down their weapons and the kingdom of God will be built and people will no longer fight each other or be at odds with each other. They will learn my ways. And ultimately, this will be realized, according to Isaiah, when they beat their swords into plowshares and they learn war no more. But the people of God are called to go on a different campaign. Even though we're tempted to fight with carnal weapons just like everybody else does it, we fight with spiritual weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual for the destruction of strongholds. Are you with me? We have a spiritual battle to wage. And yes, there are physical realities in this world, but how much are we focusing on the spiritual? How much are we sowing the seed of the kingdom of God? How much are we telling people there's a king and a kingdom that's far beyond all this nonsense? There's something that you can anchor your soul to. There is a king that rode in to save you on this day. And during Passover week, he was questioned all week. What about this? What about that? He answered every question. He was the lamb who was investigated, found to be without spot or without blemish. And on Friday of Passover week, he was killed for the sin of the world. Oh, that the world would know what God has done. Oh, that we would be ambassadors of that message of hope. Indeed, prisoners of hope. Because we serve a different kingdom and a different king. Amen? This is who we are. This is what the Bible says. Blessed be your word, Lord. Blessed be your name. Thank you for the way that you have allowed us to dive into the scriptures and really bask in the beauty and the power of your word. Thank you that even though this was an unconventional uh, Palm Sunday message, Thank you that it is filled with hope. Thank you that we don't have to stay stuck in our sin. There is a savior, a king of a different kind of kingdom that came on a rescue mission and took our place at that terrible cross and defeated death and says, there's hope. I am your hope. I know you've been disappointed time and again. I know... Worldly empires have been really just in it for their own power and glory, but I'm just. I'm humble. I carry salvation with me. I'm endowed with it. I want you to be like me. I want you to be just. I want you to be humble. I want you to carry this message to people. I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, indeed the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to spread this word. I want you to go to Corona and Norco and Yorba Linda and put it on the airwaves and support the missionaries and get my gospel out so that people will know my ways. Father, we know that we don't have to live very long to know how fickle man could be and how self-centered we are. Forgive us. We cry out to you over this nation that we have been so blessed to live in, so many blessings, probably like no nation in history. We've been blessed. Father, forgive us for our sin. We have sinned against you. Heal our backsliding. Heal our personal backsliding, Lord. Do you stay in that attitude of prayer right now and just... If you've not met this Messiah, this king, you're not part of his kingdom yet, you can be. 
He's gonna ask you to turn away from other things and trust in him for your salvation. If you're watching via live stream, you can do this. You listen to this later, you can do this right now. Something like this. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus on that rescue mission. Thank you that he rode into Jerusalem on that cult, fulfilling prophecy. Thank you that he died that week for my sins, for the sins of the world. I repent. I turn away from trying to focus only on building my own kingdom. I want to be part of your kingdom. I receive you as my Savior, my Lord, my God, my King. And I ask you to save me and change me. Change my priorities. Change my heart. Help me to begin to see things through your eyes. In Jesus' name. Father, for those who have prayed, maybe even in the quietness of their heart, thank you. You are so faithful to save. We know you've put off that second coming. If we can put it that way, put it off. You know when it's gonna happen, but you do it because you're patient. You don't want anybody to perish. You want all to come to repentance. Father, I see some signs of revival in this fellowship. How beautiful is that? That you would give us that kind of grace. And I pray that we would not impede it. We would just allow it to happen. We would not try to overplan it. We would just allow your spirit to move as you have been doing. Would you bless the person who's feeling weak? They're a Christian, but they're feeling weak. Would you bless the person who maybe has been flooded with doubts lately about Christianity and their salvation and whether it's all real? Would you strengthen them? Would you encourage our most holy faith so that we don't become so overwhelmed by circumstantial stuff that we lose our hope? Lord, we're reaching out to you and we know that you're faithful to touch us back. We're so grateful. I feel like I could stand up here and pray for a long time, but I'm just gonna end this by saying, Lord, we love you. Thank you for first loving us. Thank you for our champion riding in on Palm Sunday to save us. Thank you that he did it for the joy set before him. And thank you that our names are registered in heaven. In Jesus' holy name, and all God's people said,